It's a privilege to welcome Philip Cave, AM Executive Chair and founder of specialised private equity firm Anchorage Capital Partners to the program this morning. Phil, great to be speaking with you. Let's open our discussion with the current market. Take us through what you and the team are monitoring most closely with regard to the domestic economy. Yeah, look, I think interest rates are a factor that we've got to consider going forward. Uh, I think employment uh, and an and amount of labour in, out in the market is a really big issue with our investee companies at the moment. Then there's the international um, issues, the, clearly the Ukraine issue, where's that going to lead us and what's going to be the effect of that. Biggest issue we have currently is China uh, and, and the effect of China both investing in China and having products come from China. So uh, that's sort of, I know it's a big bag, but uh, a lot going on in the moment. Now you've got a good overview of corporate Australia. What, what sort of position and strength are organisations in, in Australia at the moment? Yeah, look, the single biggest thing that's affecting us at the moment is just lack of labour. Um, availability of labour is a really big issue in, in the majority of our investee companies. Um, the other thing is the sort of, you know, like in our transport business, the stop-go nature of floods, uh, issues with rail lines have really, really been a, a major effect on us. COVID's been really quite interesting. We've been able to manage through COVID, but these other, other issues seem to come over the top of that and uh, give us a, a few, issue, few, few problems. I thought it'd be interesting to seek your opinion on the major thematics that are driving investment decisions within the private equity sphere in particular. What are the trends you're observing within private equity in Australia? Yeah, well, I mean, at the moment, Rob, there's a lot of capital around. So that's the first factor. So people are really looking at businesses. We tend to be reactionary. We tend not look at an industry and say we're going to invest in an industry. We tend to react when an industry is available for purchase. And so we come from a slightly different angle. But issues like we've just invested in wealth management, we see that as a really exciting industry and a massive growth industry, both in Australia and, and around the world. So that's an interesting factor for us. Um, and I think other factors are the effect, again, I'll come back to the effect of China on Australia. I, I think that's going to be, going forward, one of the biggest factors. And then in terms of opportunities, where are you seeing the greatest potential across markets for a turnaround specialist such as Anchorage? Right. So turnarounds are mainly affected by, if you look at our investment portfolio, it's been a portfolio where we've bought businesses where there's been a shareholder issue. Probably nine and a half times out of ten, it's a shareholder problem. Uh, whether that be it's, a, it's an orphan business that's not a full part of the operations or that there's been a shareholder being forced to sell both financially or um, the business we've just purchased in wealth management, it was uh, the regulators in, in England said they had to sell. So that it, it's just a, a, a variety of issues. The biggest thing we look for, if there's been a change in a chief executive in a major corporation, he will tend to sell the orphan businesses off and we, we like those type of businesses. And are you seeing examples of those sort of opportunities at the moment? Uh, yeah, we are. I mean, obviously, the, the wealth management one. We think there's going to be more coming forward. I think probably COVID's protected a lot of businesses. And we see when the market opens up again, that protection's gone. So people are going to look at their operations and see more clearly what they need to move on. Uh, and we think there's a, a, a demand or a, 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 yeah, probably a demand for, for product coming through after COVID finishes. 
There's a number of immediate term and longer term risks on the horizon, including increased inflation, which you mentioned earlier, supply chain squeezes, competition for labour. Take me through some of the challenges that will have the greatest impact on local companies and then how are you expecting to potentially capitalise on those? Yeah, look, I, I think there's going to be some uh, big effects. I mean, labour's one issue. Um, uh, the other issue is obviously inflation, uh, as we've spoken about. The other, again, uh, giant issue uh, is China and supply chain um, coming. The cost of, of, of supply chain just gone through the roof. So we've got to look at factors that are that are businesses that rely on supply chain costs of bringing product to Australia, uh, that, that, that cost is going to be substantially greater going forward. Um, and that's not going to change. So you know, we've got to then look at, is there going to be a change in the market? Or are those type of products more, I mean, one of the issues is we're looking at a couple of our businesses where they're bringing, manufacturing those products back into Australia. I think also the opening up actually of India is going to be a really a great opportunity moving forward and we're looking at what the effect of the, the whole Indian uh, uh, trade effect between Australia, the signing of that agreement uh, just recently uh, with the government is going to be quite interesting. Before we move on, there's been a number of significant capital raisings, as you know, undertaken by local private equity groups in recent times. What's been your experience in attracting investor capital into Anchorage funds? I know you're just about to launch or have recently launched fund number four. And to what extent has the local private equity scene grown over recent times? Yeah, well, it's become more sophisticated. Uh, there's no question about that. We're raising our fund four and it'll be about a $500 million fund. About half our investors are in Australia and about half uh, overseas. It's been a problem for the overseas investors because they can't come down and, and do their due diligence um, and they like to do that face to face. Uh, our Australian investors are all fine with that, obviously. So there, there is a lot of capital round in the market. I think probably our position is a bit unique. We've got a unique position in the market where we invest in. So we're not traditionally a growth fund. We're a, a fund that does special situations and businesses that are uh, that are stressed, uh, if we if would be the best way to put it. Let's delve more specifically into Anchorage Capital Partners. As I understand, the firm was officially launched in 2008, though its partners, including yourself, had experience in private equity long before that. Take us through the origins of the of the business and the opportunity that you saw to launch it some 14 years ago. Yeah, look, I think there was. Uh, Prior to that, we, we had been doing one-on-one -on -one transactions. In fact, we were working with private equity uh, before that. So uh, Quadrant were, were, were good friends of ours and we did a couple of transactions with them at that time. And then uh, it was felt uh, we should raise a fund. So we've got a more, a, a more broad spread of investments. And we were big investors in our, in our first fund ourselves. So uh, that was an interesting time. Um, and again, private equity has become more sophisticated in that 14 years. So uh, it's given us the opportunity to really find a position in the marketplace for us. And, and we've found that. And so uh, that was an exciting time for us. And, uh, and it's been really a, been a pretty interesting journey. I understand that the mandate of the firm is to focus on control investments in established businesses with a strong market position or brand which is not performing to its full potential. What is the process undertaken to identify companies that fit that brief? Probably in summary of what you've just said is we, we call that owning the pathway to the customer. We, we like businesses that have got a good 
ownership of the pathway to the customer. So, uh, and it's just that they haven't maximised that in some form. So we're, again, we're reactionary. We don't sit down and say, we're going to invest in wealth management. We, we've got to find out when there's a business that is a bit stressed and it needs uh, a new ownership, that's a perfect time for us. So we're looking at those businesses and then we, we, when we look at those businesses and see them, we then do work on, well, what's the market for that business? I mean, Golden Circle's a really good example when we purchased Golden Circle. Lovely pathway to customer, really, but it, but it was underperforming. So it was a great opportunity for us to really get involved with that business and fix it. And once you've identified opportunities, what comes next is in what are the fundamentals that are considered prior to deploying capital and how do you determine the optimal deal structure? Yeah, we're, we're not high debt users, so we, we put debt into our businesses, but often if the businesses are turnaround, they can't uh, support a lot of debt. So obviously an equity check's uh, key. If we buy businesses that can do, obviously we'll, we'll put that in. So we're not highly structured, uh, that's the first point. The second is what we do when, when before we get involved in the businesses, we look at the opportunities and we highlight those. I mean, in the case of Dick Smith, uh, we had highlighted there was about 120 items we needed to focus on uh, in the first six months and do the turnaround of that and really manage that. So we created a turnaround committee, that committee met weekly uh, and we addressed those 120 items. And of course 120 items after week one might become 130 items, might become 110 items. So it, it's very dynamic, it moves a lot. Are there any consistent themes that arise for these types of target companies? Um, is in, you know, presumably it's either they've got a lack of capital or that they've got poor management attention. Once invested, how does Anchorage go about implementing that successful turnaround strategy? And you did mention it there uh, in, in summary. Yeah, I mean, the turnaround committee is a key element to that, or you, know, you could call it growth committee. But in the old days, we used to call it back to basics. So we used to focus on the basic things of the business. Invariably, they weren't done well, so we focus on them. We're very disciplined about that. I mean, if the one thing we do is we're very strong about get the basics of the business right. You don't have to be overly sophisticated, um, but do the basic things well, and guess what happens? The business starts trading well when you focus on those things and do them. I also note there's an emphasis internally on working collaboratively with the existing management team which differs to some private equity competitors. What does this look like in practical application and what are the skills Anchorage bring to the table to complement existing management teams? Yeah, look, I think the skills is we have a portfolio of potential chief executives and senior executives that are available to go into businesses if that's needed. We like to um, keep management if we can it is not unusual for us to replace senior management by chief executive, CFO, if that's needed. We would have uh, earmarked if that's needed in the first place. So we tend to do that immediately we take over the business. So as soon as we take over the business, if it needs an injection of quality management in it, that, that will be done. And that will be owned by the firm that we're taking over, not, not, not employees of, of Anchorage. So that's a key element moving forward is the management of the business and you know, getting that right. And 
is it mostly a case that the, the management team does need to be replaced or certain executives need to be replaced? How often do you have to go in there and do a, a, clean, a clean sweep versus how often do you just need to replace certain members? Yeah, it's the latter. Replace certain members. Uh, you wouldn't want to do a clean sweep because there's all that knowledge in the business and it's good knowledge. But it, it is not uncommon for us to replace the chief executive. I want to explore the growth of the business and its track record. Fund One raised $200 million in the same year the business was launched, 2008. That's currently closed for new investments. Reflecting on this initial fund, talk me through how the capital was deployed and then some of the success stories that arose out of that. We uh, invested in a transaction in, uh, in China uh, called First Engineering. That was a very successful investment. Uh, we invested in Dick Smith uh, and that was a successful Golden Circle successful. Acro, which was a scaffolding business, that's now listed independently. We really quite a l number of very successful transactions. Burger King in New Zealand it was very successful. Um, so a, a variety of different industries, but, but a really uh, the, a very successful fund. Next came Fund 2 five years later in 2013 with a mandate of $250 million, which continues, as I understand it, to be invested. I'd be, interesting to hear, I'd be interested to hear whether there were any learnings from Fund 1 that you took into Fund 2. Yeah, look, uh, well, well, firstly, that's, that fund's now closed and fully invested and uh, we've sold out of that fund. So, uh, effectively, that's returned capital back to our investors, uh, Fund 2 as well as Fund 1. Um, one of the things we learned, I mean, I guess we learnt the importance of management. We learnt the importance of the chief executive and the role the right chief executive plays, particularly if it's a stressed business, a particular style of chief executive needed in that business. Um, it's a high energy, very draining, hard work turnaround, and it's, uh, so it needs a lot of commitment from a chief executive. And we learnt the importance of that. There is no, no doubt that, that if there was one learning curve came for us in turnaround, the importance of the, chief, the right chief executive. Given markets and industries change and adapt significantly, even over shorter timelines and short periods, how does Anchorage go about investing ahead of the curve and, and staying up to date with new growth industries and sectors? Yeah, a good question. And, and you know, for example, we did a big investment in solar in Fund 2. And we're the major player of uh, commercial uh, solar installations to, to companies like Woolworths and Coles and organisations like that. And that market changed as we owned it. I mean, the price of a, of a, uh, of a panel when we bought the business uh, reduced by 300%. I mean, it was in, in a matter of uh, 18 months. Wow. Um, so it was, the market was just moving, an incredibly dynamic market. Um, but exciting times to be there. And so, yeah, we, we would say we have a small company mentality to that. And what I define by a small company mentality is we're very agile and move very quickly. Uh, so that gives us the benefit to be ahead of the market because we're not, uh, we're not slow in making decisions and moving on. We make decisions very quickly. More recently, in 2017, Fund 3 was launched with $360 million in available capital to deploy. I'd be interested to hear how investors have responded to the steady growth in the business over the past, say, decade, and what are some of the portfolio companies that were included within that fund? Sure. So in Fund 3, uh, we have uh, Rail First, which is uh, the largest rail leasing business in Australia. We have... Um, 
South Pacific Laundries, or SPL now we call it, which is the, one of the biggest commercial laundry businesses in Australia. We have GBST, which is a, our recent acquisition. It's a wealth management business. Uh, so that was very exciting for us. So Fund 4 looks, looks like it'll be a, um, a very successful uh, and very good fund. Just on wealth management, and you mentioned the recent acquisition of the New Zealand wealth management business earlier, what, what's attractive to uh, Anchorage as a business in investing in wealth management? We've seen Morgan Stanley obviously increase their exposure to wealth management. There's a number of other firms that are doing it in Australia. What do you, what do you like about that particular sector? Oh, look, it's growing at about 15% a year if you don't do anything. This is a well-run business. The uh, regulator in the, about three-quarters of its business is in England, in London and about a quarter, third of its businesses in Australia with the major banks. Uh, so it does the underlying software for wealth management, superannuation funds for banks, um, and also the same in London. So it's a, a, a good spread business, so it's, it's geographically spread. It's in an industry that's growing, and it's industry people like investing in, as you say, uh, yeah, several interesting investors in it. So we see that business as being quite exciting for us. We can grow that business. Um, it was a very unusual transaction. So a lot of people didn't like the, because uh, about a quarter of the business was sold back to its original owner. Uh, we've now, that's now concluded, concluded on 31st of March. We did that in three months. And everyone said it would take us 12 months. We were able to transition services for us. It's a really skill element we have. When we buy our businesses from large corporations, transitioning them to be independent. I mean, it's one of the biggest jobs we did when we transitioned Dick Smith from Woolworths. And it's a skill that we've really developed. And so it, it held us in good esteem when we did GBST. And with GBST, as I understand it, you sold, and I think that's what you're referring to there, the capital markets Correct. vision of the business. What was the uh, rationale behind that? The purchaser of GBST, uh, FNZ, felt that they were forced by the, the competition regulator in, in, in England, uh, CMA, to sell the business. They then claimed back that they weren't a dominant player in the capital markets part of the business, maybe in wealth management there was a conflict. And they agreed with that. So the part of the transaction was you had to buy the whole business and then sell back to FNZ, who is a competitor of yours, in the wealth management business, the capital markets business, uh, which we did. Presumably, given the weight of capital, particularly from global institutions, coupled with a record low interest rate environment, has meant that vendor price expectations have increased substantially. Are you finding any evidence of either competitor firms overpaying for assets or alternatively the vendors of companies being unrealistic with their price expectations? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I mean, obviously, we have a saying in our business, you make your money when you enter. So we're very disciplined about buying our business as well. We would probably look at uh, 60 to 70 businesses before we, we make one acquisition. So we're looking at a lot of businesses and invariably we don't buy those other businesses because we get outbid. Very common. And what about Fund 4? So that recently launched, uh, I think about a month or two months ago, $500 million mandate. What's the, what's the uh, impetus for that fund and, and where do you see the capital being deployed? Yes, so we, uh, we see the as being similar, although um, special situations, which is a broader aspect than just turnaround, we see as being uh, a skill that we've developed. And uh, so we, we will see more special situations in Fund 4 than probably were in Fund 3 and Fund 2. 
I read that the latest fund, of the latest fund, 40% of commitments were sourced from local institutions, whilst the remaining 60% were sourced via offshore limited partners. Is this a trend you expect to continue over the years ahead with future funding that you do? Yeah, look, I think so. I think also the other trend will be high net worths, which we don't have in our first uh, four funds. Uh, we, we see there's a market for that opening up. So that's probably going to be a change. Uh, there'll, be a, there'll be some high net worths in Fund 4, sorry, um, but it'll be bigger in Fund 5. Before we move on, in a competitive marketplace, what do you see the key differentiators for Anchorage Capital Partners and what does the next stage of growth look like? Fund 4 is underway, what will Fund 5 and Fund 6 hypothetically look like? Um, hypothetically? Uh, <laughs> look, I think we're probably, uh, the fund's become a larger fund, um, doing probably larger transactions. I think our skill base is still working with management. We're very hands-on. We're very active investors in our, in our investments. Um, so we're not passive. Um, so that's probably a differentiator in the, in the private equity market for us. Um, and we see doing some really interesting, that's why we think special situations is a market to do some really interesting transactions. Yeah, buy our transactions well, uh, work strongly with management, maybe bring some management into the business and improve the business strategically. This now gives us an opportunity to briefly discuss Philip Cave AM, the person. Firstly, walk me through your upbringing and background growing up in Sydney and, and where your interest in business and finance originated from. Yeah, look, I, I think I got into accounting, um, but, but I'm a natural entrepreneur, so I'm a deal junkie. I like doing deals. And in fact, uh, at Macquarie, where I headed up all our lending side, I, I'm always looking at things half full. And I remember saying to Tony Berg, who was the then chief executive, Tony, not so sure it's smart long-term having an, an entrepreneur running our lending side, so maybe I move on. But uh, <coughs> Macquarie Bank have been uh, one of our major backers uh, in all those transactions uh, that we've done. So there's still a good relationship. You graduated from the New South Wales Institute of Technology with a Bachelor of Business degree. What came next immediately post-university? Um, I then started working with a, probably a company called Development Finance Corporation, which was possibly Australia's first um, merchant bank. Um, and that gave me an insight into lending, uh, into investing, and I was really the marketing guy, marketing uh, yeah, high uh, or very expensive leasing product, like leasing of aircraft, leasing of rolling stock, that type of thing. And then came a significant tenure at Macquarie Bank, rising to executive director and working closely alongside fellow luminaries Alan Moss AO, Tony Berg AM, Bill Moss AO. I'd be interested to learn more about your journey at Macquarie during the 90s, uh, 1980s and 1990s and, and how the business grew. Yeah, a really interesting time and, and I, uh, I love my time at Macquarie. I mean, when I joined it was Hill Samuel. Uh, then we were involved in uh, getting a banking licence. Um, and just working with uh, some really, really smart people and high-thinking people was a really great time and a good learning. I, I learnt a lot at Macquarie and they really uh, helped me tremendously. And I, I love working in that environment where we, we were building our lending book um, and that was an exciting time. Becoming Macquarie Bank was a good time and, and I was actively involved in that. Interestingly, when I left, Macquarie backed me to go and buy businesses and do uh, effectively do turnarounds. And uh, so Macquarie have been involved since I've left Macquarie uh, with me uh, for a long time. I'm always interested to know what, what are the ingredients that make 
Macquarie Bank so successful today and what made them so successful back then as well? Yeah, look, that's a very good question. Uh, my um, take on it is uh, consistency in the chief executive. Every single chief executive at Macquarie has been there about 10 years. They've all been internal appointments. They've all been four very different chief executives. And so the adaptability of, say, someone like an Alan Moss, who was um, very much a, uh, a thinker on governance, compared to a Nicholas Moore, who was very much a marketing person, they, the, the company or the organisation, the bank adapted for those differences. Shamara is probably a combination of both those, um, which is interesting. Um, and so it's a great compliment to them that every single appointment's internal and uh, they stay about 10 years. So that's been quite interesting. And I, I think that's why I'm saying in our businesses, the key of, the good, of a good business for us is a good chief executive. And if you look at Macquarie, they've had outstanding chief executives. Reflecting on your time there, what are, the, what are some of the key deals that you recall working on? At Macquarie? Yeah. I mean, the biggest deal I worked on was obviously becoming a bank. Um, yeah. And so that was the biggest thing. Then starting a leasing uh, product and then starting a property product, which uh, Bill Moss then um, uh, was, the, uh, was the director in charge of. So uh, that was an exciting time, building up a very substantial uh, lending book and, and being skilled at... Uh, the, the skill of Macquarie was always low risk, high return. And so limited your risk, but maximise your return. And I think that is today. Next came the launch of Interbank Capital Partners, the precursor to Anchorage Capital, albeit a, a business which focused more on investment banking and corporate advisory from my understanding. What was the modus operandi of Interbank Capital and how did you go about building your own boutique investment vehicle? Sure. Well, in fact, what Interbank did was invest in a number of transactions. And I, in those early days, I would go and run those transactions. So we bought uh, a payroll business from MLC. It was Australia's largest payroll business. And I sold that to ADP a couple of years later. So that's one example of uh, getting involved in a transaction. But we're only one transaction at a time. And that's why we wanted to move from Interbank, which is one transaction at a time, to a broadest factor in, in, in private equity. And don't forget, they were reasonably early days in private equity. It must be said, you're also a committed and passionate philanthropist. What guides your interest in these fields and, and which organisations do you dedicate most of your resources toward? Yeah, look, look I do spend a lot of time. Obviously, uh, I've been involved with children's disability uh, for uh, over 30 years. Um, Ability First, which still operates from this office, is one of the largest, if not the largest, uh, disability agency in Australia. We turn over about $1.5 billion. I chair that and obviously that's, uh, that I contribute to that. Um, I'm involved in Excelsior College which is a Christian higher education college. We're aiming to get our university status in the next uh, 12 months or so. That's an exciting time for us and we've built that business up from uh, 150 students. We now have about uh, one, point, uh, one and a half thousand students wow. today. So we're building that up. To, um, so that's an exciting uh, business and I'm obviously involved in that financially as well. In closing out our discussion, based on the vast array of career experiences you've had, what are the key ingredients for success at either an individual level or at a company level? Look, I think the single biggest learning curve for me is the importance of a chief executive in a business. I just can't stress that enough. That, that's key. Um, I think the other thing is, you know, the growth of the industry and where it's going. 
Uh, the other is how important that industry. So, for example, in Fund uh, 3, we, we own Scots Transport. So, you know, uh, refrigerated transport around Australia is just moving food around Australia, a really key and important, uh, important area. So, you know, we're looking at, at, at those types of industries that we think are really solid and sustainable uh, moving forward, um, even after the effects of the international um, you know, Ukraine problems and, and particularly China. That's really got me concerned because I think uh, that's going to move our markets quite substantially in the long term away from China into, say, India's one area. And then from a corporate standpoint, what are the common mistakes that management teams of organisations make in, in your experience? Yeah, not being strategic, um, reacting on issues that are today's issues and not looking longer term. So I think uh, we're, we've, got, you, we've got to pull management teams out of the mud and say you've got to look at the long term future of the business. What, is, what does the business look like in five years time and, and, and then drive it after you know where you want to get to. So it's having a very clear view about what that business should be in five years and then driving it to that. You've done countless deals across your career. What does it take to be an effective deal maker and what are some of the fundamental lessons you've learned? Well, as I said earlier, I'm a bit of a deal junkie, so I like looking at lots of transactions. Um, probably saying no a lot, unfortunately, but uh, looking, at, uh, looking at transactions is, is, uh, is key. You've got to be out there in the market, see what's available. Probably the key uh, of learning for us is the best transactions for us are orphans. Uh, companies that are in, in, in organisations that really don't fit in that organisation. So we like those type of businesses. So we constantly are looking for when there's a chief change in a chief executive in a major organisation, because generally businesses fall out of that. When you look ahead to, say, the next three to five years, it seems that you see Australia's strategic future with the US and then trade markets with India. How quickly do you think we'll be able to replace uh, China from an import and export and trade perspective with, with India? Look, I think the market's incredibly dynamic. I think it moves really quickly. Um, I mean, you know, if you would have owned a taxi plate five years ago, you would have thought, wow, that's a really valuable thing. And, you know, people were paying four or five hundred thousand for taxi plates. Today they're worth zero. Um, so that's how quickly the market moves. We're in a very dynamic time. I'm, uh, I say to everyone here, snap on, snap, put on the seatbelt and enjoy the ride. It's going to be fun, but it's going to move very quickly. And so I see our, our issues with China moving very quickly to other areas. And, and I think that's going to happen um, over the next short period of time. As a result of geopolitical tensions both in our region and in Europe, are you seeing any increased appetite internally for investment in, say, defence technology industries? So we did own a, a business called Bizaloy Steel, which was making armour-plated steel for the defence industries around the world, actually. Um, and there is no doubt there is more demand for that product. Um, and so, yeah, we look at defence industries. Um, there are not too many in Australia, um, to be perfectly honest. Uh, the steel was one aspect of that, um, but I, I don't see any, much of that in Australia at the moment. What about cyber? Are you seeing opportunities to invest in that space? Uh, I mean, I think that's got huge potential and, in fact, huge destruction as well. So uh, we've got to be very careful about how we approach that. But yes, that's an interesting market for us, no question.
And in closing out, what's your leadership style that you employ here and what do you think's made Anchorage so successful? Obviously the team's played a big role, but how have you been able to structure the team and, and lead the team? Um, look, look, I think to give responsibility, um, I, I'm not a micromanager, um, so to give a broader responsibility down to your partners so they've got the authority to do things, uh, I, I think that's a, a really key element and to have an open agenda as you've seen in our office, it's an open office, very open agenda, be able to discuss things and make decisions and move quickly. And what's next for Phil Cave? <laughs> um, Look, I, I think the, the guys, the partners in the business here have matured up and have done really well. I think my position will be more as a mentor now, um, although I occasionally love doing deals. Um, I suspect I'll still do one or two. Uh, but yeah, we've got some really high quality partners in this business, which will take the business forward. Uh, and I can just um, uh, be more a mentor to them. Phil Cave, AM Executive Chair and Founder of Anchorage Capital Partners. Pleasure speaking with you this morning and wishing you and the team all the best for the future. Thanks Rob, I really appreciate it.